picture this. It's your 9,126 day of work and you are the last human employee working for the world's largest online retailer, Yungo. For the past 25 years, you've been working and living in the Yungo Fulfillment Center, shipping packages alongside your robot co-workers. This is a world where the brutal tectonics of late-stage capitalism have reached new heights and humans have disappeared behind the long shadow of the machine. Except you, of course, and your robot colleagues, helping Yungle fulfill its customer promise of delivering dreams. So, that leads me to the big question. What is it that we do at Yungle? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, we deliver... We deliver dreams. Repeat after me. We... We... Deliver... Deliver... Dreams! We deliver dreams. So, let's make someone's dream come true. Let's go get our first product, shall we? Sure, yeah. Full steam ahead, Captain! It's not all bad, though. You do take some pride in your work. But you're also a reluctant recruit of an anti-Yungle activist group living on the outside. How will you handle the pressures to stealthily sabotage the company from within? Are you willing to risk it all for the larger cause of your fellow human workers on the outside? Welcome to The Last Worker, a narrative-based and dystopian virtual reality game exploring the struggles of an increasingly automated and consumption-driven world. Howdy. Welcome to the Yungle Fulfillment Center One Tour. I'm really excited to be showing you around JFC One. For the first time, we are bringing the tour to you. This building is 650 million square feet, or as large as the sunken city of Manhattan, which technically makes us larger. (laughs) Millions of miles of boxes, each containing a dream come true. At Yungle, we deliver the future, except we do it right now. Experience our cutting-edge Yungle Robotics Fulfillment Center. It's a combination of people, technology, and high-tech computer algorithms. At Yungle, nothing can stop progress. Quality starts with you. From Work Futures, I'm Rihanna Brown and this is Ready Worker One. On today's episode, I catch up with the creator of The Last Worker for a back of house chat about the game. I think Jörg does a much better introduction, so I'll let him introduce himself. I am Jörg Titel and I'm the writer, director and producer, oh God, I'm creator of The Last Worker, a narrative first person stealth adventure VR etc. game. Let's kick off our chat with the idea behind The Last Worker. Has this been a slow burn for a while or was it a more recent idea? The idea of The Last Worker came, I think, a few years ago when I walked into a local supermarket and overnight the employees had been replaced by those self-checkout tills. And I knew all the employees by name and I would say hi to them and I'd know if they had kids or not and all sorts of other stuff. And suddenly they were all gone. There were just two of them left. One of them 
behind the counter in front of the sort of like cigarette sort of, you know, curtain. And the other one next to those tills, just waiting for them to break down so they could push the sort of reset button on it occasionally. And I walk up to them and I say, uh, is it, isn't it a bit strange that you are assisting a robot when it should be the other way around? And it doesn't seem to be the right evolution of this thing. <laughs> and so that was the beginning of the thought where I said, wow, we are now replacing people overnight. And then I saw an old person walk into the shop and I'd seen them around several times. And they'd always go up and like sort of hog the sort of front desk quite a lot for a while because they wanted to make chit chat and have a conversation and and they'd usually just buy like one apple, but, you know, take up about 10 minutes of the employee's time. And I always resented that a little bit because I was in a rush. Very important, you know. And now it's like, oh, my God, what are they going to do? Like, this is their moment where they socialize. This is their moment when they share something, even if it's a menial little casual human exchange. For some people, this is very much an important part of their community, the shop, the or, and their daily routine, and that's being taken away from them. So all that stuff like led me to want to dive in. And around, around that time, there was a documentary on the BBC called The Truth Behind the Click, which is a BBC Panorama documentary on what it's like to work inside an Amazon fulfillment center. And then everything clicked into place. I just had to make a game about this so you can feel what it's like to be at the receiving end. I think we often have this sense that the future actually arrives in some kind of big announcement or major decision. But most of the time, of course, the future actually arrives really quietly in the present in between our weekly shops. Your first-hand experience of how the future of work changes in the present, like your grocery store example, really does highlight some of the bigger changes that are happening around work in here and now. What were some of the other changes that you were paying attention to when you created The Last Worker? I mean, I work in the entertainment industry, if you want to call it that, although they call it content now, and I'm very happy to get into that in a second, because that's part of this automation process that's happening. Automation is happening everywhere because people believe that efficiency at all costs, and literally at all costs, especially human costs, is what's necessary. The one thing that we should be efficient about is expanding energy unnecessarily and destroying our planet. By removing humans, we may be removing a few organic bodies from a space in which they might sort of, you know, exude some gases, but replacing them with endless servers is probably not a good idea. But we don't see those servers because they're on remote places. So it's all good, right? Look, look how clean everything is and how sterile. And there's no people. How lovely is that? Um, but we've been seeing that sort of everywhere. And I've been seeing it in the entertainment industry as well, where intellectual work, which I always assumed was the whole point of it, is being replaced by statistics and metrics and Netflix. The idea of, uh, oh, well, this is what people want to see. So let's make more of that and let's generate more of that content. And it's really now, like after I've been through the journey of working on The Last Worker for a few years and also the industry, especially post-pandemic, the game industry has also massively expanded, of course, because people have been staying at home mostly, etc. Thus also serving this perpetual expansion of automation beautifully, is that we've all been reduced to content. Uh, all of us, like we're all sort of engagement seeking data packs now. 
were packages that get delivered and discarded, recycled, forgotten, sometimes misplaced. Um, and I, that's what I was fearing the most, I think, always inherently that, you know, the more we remove the human element from stuff, the less it will have meaning. And ultimately, the easier it will be to control us. And that's what's happening now. I really love this grocery store example because it actually highlights a very subtle automation taxonomy. So when we think of automation, we often just think of the really obvious things like job replacement, where we do a direct substitute of a human for a machine. But there's some other ways that automation technologies impact work. We have things like job augmentation, where a machine becomes part of a worker's job, so they're integrated into a worker's job, which means the responsibilities of that worker shifts. So in your example, it would be the checkout person who no longer actually physically processes the groceries, but they now oversee seven or eight individual checkout stations. So their job now shifts from actually processing the groceries to doing low-grade kind of security guard work or even tier one tech support for when those machines don't actually work. But there's a couple of other subtle ways that automation technologies impact work. We have job transference where we use technology to shift the work from a worker to a consumer. In your example, we're now processing our own groceries and packing our own bags. It's a kind of subtle free labor in a way. And then lastly, there's job creation where the introduction of these automation technologies actually create a whole new pool of workers. There's the obvious workers, of course, like the highly paid workers that build the technologies and the machines. But then there's also the forgotten workers, which is an emerging underclass of lower paid gig workers working in shitty conditions, doing all of the hidden work that is actually required to stitch together these technologies. So that's things like moderating content and labeling data. There's so much to unpack here around automation, both as a technology and I think increasingly as an ideology. And so a question for you as a writer, director and producer why not create a film or TV series? Why would you choose a game to explore a topic like automation? I've been a filmmaker most of my life, but my long-term goal, and it's certainly been long, because I tried to pull this off about 25 years ago, and people called me a megalomaniac for trying, but was to get games and films together and to sort of create them out of the same creative core team as opposed to doing all this license and marketing-based bullshit, which is another form of automation. Because when you remove an original idea from its original creators, then you're automating that idea outside of the core intent that created it. You may be hiring other people to do it, but they don't have the same intent in making it. And if you make content uh, devoid of intent, then you are automating us out of thought and meaning. But I felt that in the case of The Last Worker, a game would be the best way to actually bring back that sense of empathy that we are now lacking when we, as they like to say, engage with content. Because people will now double, triple screen a film if they even stumble upon a film anymore in a sort of endless sea of thumbnails. When they do, they will very rarely pay attention to it fully. And there is something about creative control, and in this case, not in the making of it, but in the consumption of it, that you have with a virtual reality game, but also with any game for that matter. Because if you stop playing, if you stop touching the controller or the keyboard, then the game stops. 
a film will keep going and getting ignored. So the engagement with a VR game, for instance, is guaranteed. You're in there using your body inside of this narrative experience. And I wanted people to actually feel what it's like to be alone, forgotten, and serving anonymous people that are clicking away on bullshit that they don't need. What does it feel like? What does it feel to be alienated away from a normal, quote-unquote, human existence from family, from love, from meaningful relationships, and to be reduced to something that is sub-robot. And that's what I wanted to explore. And I, and so, and putting you inside the body of, and, and who also does, who doesn't want to be a sort of a middle-aged uh, fat man um, in a flying mobility scooter? It's everyone's fantasy, I think. So the last work is a story of a very unlikely protagonist employee called Kurt. Can you walk us through a bit of the gameplay and what it's like for Kurt navigating his Jungle existence? Well, The Last Worker puts you in the body and the mind, actually, of a guy called Kurt, who is the last human worker in a near-future fulfillment center the size of the now sunken city of Manhattan. And it belongs to a corporation called Jungle, which, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with any sort of known online retailers whatsoever. So Kurt, at first, um, uh, when we start the story uh, or the player starts the story, he is talking to his um, broken cobot, who's voiced by Jason Isaacs, who you might know from Star Trek Discovery and the Death of Stalin and Harry Potter and others. Kurt is voiced by Olafur Dari Olofsson. But anyway, as the story starts, Skew, the cobot, is malfunctioning and is taking takes you on a sort of onboarding experience which new employees used to be subjected to of course the company hasn't had any new employees in years and through in this dilapidated broken corner of the fulfillment center called jfc1 and in there you get to learn the ropes even though you know them already well you as the character knows it already and then you start doing your day-to-day which just involves you know, playing fetch, essentially, getting packages, finding out whether they're damaged or not, lifting them off of these enormous shelves the size of skyscrapers in this flying vehicle, the Jungle Pod. But there's very little thought involved, ultimately. And then on this fateful uh, chapter in Kurt's life, he suddenly gets approached by Hoverbird or this flying robot that resembles a hummingbird. And the voice that's, that's talking through that bird um, is this mysterious woman who is part of an organization called Spear, which is a society of activists who are trying to fight automated redundancy and the sort of expansion of automation. And so Spear tries to recruit you from the outside in order to become their inside man that would ultimately dismantle this corporation from the inside. And Kurt is very reluctant to join doesn't want to at first at all and then gradually gets almost forced into doing it but i don't want to give too much away because there's a lot going on but then you'll have to balance your day-to-day work with these activist tasks which at first are quite simple surveillance stuff and intel collecting stuff and then gradually it evolves into something involving hacking into certain parts of the facility which humans don't have access to perhaps even some combat and definitely a lot of stealth and sneaking around and other stuff Other than surviving the Jungle Fulfillment Center, are there other objectives in the game? The goal is to not get fired because if you do, then you won't be able to do the activist tasks either. So that's bizarre yin and yang between both serving and also dismantling 
young goal is going to become increasingly challenging. But ultimately, it's a journey of self or a journey of discovery in general. And there's three different endings in the game. So there's no one end goal. Okay, so let's talk gamification. Embodying a worker in a fulfillment center is honestly one of the last ideas I would think of for a video game. But then, of course, that got me thinking much of today's work's already been gamified. But the question I always have is to what ends? Like, why are we doing it? My sense is that this wide-scale gamification is starting to result in some kind of soft-lock dystopia, where the techniques that were initially used to encourage and nudge and support us have actually turned out to be the techniques that are designed to either make more money or control for the deployers, right? So in a weird kind of non-obvious way, we've all been played by gamification, I'm actually keen to know your reason for gamifying what is possibly one of the most gamified jobs going around. Yes, absolutely. Because I think, uh, well, first of all, Amazon has literally gamified the most subservient job on earth. I mean, you have a little clicker with which you scanner thing, which, which you have to cover about 10 miles on foot each day on concrete and metal with no natural light in these fulfillment centers. It ticks down the seconds between each pick up, it starts beeping really loudly to alert people around you that you're fucking up. So it's all about humiliation, bullying, ranking, outdoing each other, being better than others, feeling that you are a failure at all points as well. So it's a really shitty arcade game. It sucks. And it also removes any sort of personal agency from it. You are just a sort of meat vessel that has to sort of chase after this fucking arrow on your little GPS thing. I mean, funnily enough, I looked at all that. It's like, well, that would make a great game. But it is one already. You know, it is a game. It's just a very sordid one. And so the gamification of society in general, the idea that we have to rate each other, the fact that our kids are being pushed into competitive modes at very early stages in their lives. I mean, here in London, my daughter had to undergo this horrible process of the 11 plus where 10 year old girls have to all the, like do these exams, highly competitive exams in order to get a place in a school at age 11. And I mean, that's the kind of shit I didn't even want to do when I was entering university. Once I got into one, which happened to be NYU, and, uh, you know, I didn't try for anyone else. I was one, I, I was, I'd much rather take a whole year off to, to, to go like then, then have to put such pressure on me. Why? Um, and we're doing this to our kids. I mean, my daughter was, you know, was one of like 30 kids selected out of 3,000. And the level of stress that she had to undergo was horrific. And, and for what purpose? She could either become one of the elites, quote unquote, that then sort of control a bunch of people and sort of take their jobs away from them and decide it's much more efficient not to, not to do anything, not to, to use AI. Or... Uh, or is she going to be this overeducated idiot as well who then can't get a job at all because we don't need them anymore? Um, why are we doing this? Why are we subjecting people to these pressures? I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Why would you want to do this to people? It's a good question. I actually don't think anyone could answer that with confidence. We are obsessed with the means, but to what ends? Like, why? It's so uncommon that we question the unsubstantiated claims of these theories let alone actually unpack some of the unintended consequences and the exploitative mechanics behind them. I think that most gamification has very little concern for the user, or in this case the worker, beyond consuming more products or buying more things. 
And yes, gamification advocates will say there's a whole range of benevolent reasons as to why we do this. I'm just saying we really take a critical lens to these things. We really ask the question of what is the issue for which we assume gamification is the answer? Employees aren't motivated. Let's gamify productivity. This e-learning is mind-numbingly boring. Let's gamify it to kind of get people through the process. I just get this sense that we're looking for solutions in the wrong places. Anyway, I've taken us off track. Let's go back to the last worker. When we play a game, we spend a lot of time and attention in the one place. As a game designer, you get to curate where players spend their time and attention. I'm curious as to why you'd want players spending time and attention experiencing things like isolation, gamification, atomization, and automation. First of all, as a sort of way to empathize with it, but at the same time, I don't expect my um, players to be inherently empathic, especially when people who play video games are not used to feeling that. I mean, just on Friday, I was on this panel at the EGX conference, game conference here in London at the Excel Center, or it's actually it's now the Abu Dhabi International Conference Entertainment Center Excel or something. So I was essentially in Abu Dhabi on Friday, apparently. Anyway, but there I was, you know, walking into this massive conference hall with freaking Call of Duty Activision booth here and all this nonsense everywhere. And we had this panel called This Video Game Panel is Not Political, which I admit is a lie. And it was uh, hosted by Steve Boxer, freelance, but mostly Guardian games journalist and a very, very, very cool, very punk kind of guy. And an amazing Australian developer called Chantal Ryan, who's uh, one of my absolute favorite people on earth. She's making a game called Dark Web Streamer, for which she wrote her own human AI engine. And uh, and conversations with her around the topic are really great. And I, I'll get back to that in a second. I, AI isn't, I don't see AI as all bad, obviously. And I don't see automation as all bad either. You know, it's, I think uh, technology is there to enable the disabled, but not to disable the enabled, right? What is the purpose of you wanting to automate something? The question that no one asks, or the answer to the why should never be solely or it's certainly not in the first place because there's money to be made. It should always be because it serves a larger purpose, a, first, a purpose of bettering something. And of course, money will be made because people ultimately want to better their lives. People don't think about the why anymore because context has been removed again by automated social, quote unquote, platforms that have shortened everything to a point where context cannot exist. And if context cannot exist, then the only thing you ever see is the surface level bullshit end result of something. And therefore, all of our opinions get more and more marginalized to a point where we only have talking heads, but no sort of communicating minds at all. Minds cannot meet in a world where we're all just spouting bullshit and fait accomplis on Twitter or whatever. It doesn't work. So again, we are being automated out of talking to each other without realizing it. I feel like we might be giving a false impression here that the game is all doom and gloom. It's actually a brilliant, dark, satirical comedy in a way. 
yeah, the game is really, really fun. It's like you're flying around in six directions in this massive world. You're just lifting this crazy shit around. You are this super stylized character engaging these incredible actors uh, with Zelda Williams as well, with Robin's uh, daughter, but also the fantastic actress and on right, also film director, like Legend of Korra and other things she does. She's absolutely brilliant. Claire Hope Ashity, you might know from Children of Men, where she was the one pregnant woman. Uh, <laughs> uh David Hewlett uh, from The Shape of Water uh, and other things. Uh, Tommy Earl Jenkins, who uh, in the gamer world is known for playing one of the characters in uh, Death Stranding. Actually, let's talk more about the workers behind The Last Worker. You of all people would absolutely know that there is such an ugly and toxic side to the video game industry from things like forced overtime to poor working conditions and pretty shit pay. In fact, I came across a quote from one of the game designers who described the pressure of working on Grand Theft Auto by saying it was like working with a gun to your head seven days a week. So I'm going to put the heat on you now and your back of house operations for The Last Worker. How did you design a game with decent working conditions in an industry that is totally fertile grounds for its own version of a dark comedic and dystopian future of work game? That's interesting. No, I mean, we actually just recent, just last week, we announced that we're delaying our game's PC version, which was supposed to come out 19th of October uh, until early next year to come out alongside the console and VR versions because we didn't want to kill our team and we didn't want to cause mental problems and we didn't want to crunch. And of course, there's there are people who take that step or others like, you know, in the case of Cyberpunk, they delay a game but then continue crunching for another 6, 8, 12 months anyway. We didn't want to do that. I mean, we work extremely hard. And I personally, as the sort of director, as, as the director and writer of the project, I personally am happy to think about this all the time and to actually be on call when people need it and to respond instantly because it's my responsibility. It's my project. But I'm not going to subject people who may not have that. I mean, everyone who's working on the project is passionate and everyone is wonderful. And my creative partner on the project, Ryan Bousfield, who's the creative director and founder of Wolf and Wood, VR pioneer, a pioneering developer in Newcastle. I mean, he's an extremely hard worker, but he's a guy who's actually taught me about work-life balance because I can't call him after six. He won't pick up. And he also, we work uh, four-day weeks, so Monday to, to Thursday. And, uh, you know, the team has three-day weekends every week. Um, and we did that about halfway through development and it works extremely well. So people are more energized. People give more during the hours that they do have working on it. So yeah, we've been, we didn't want to come across as hypocrites. I don't want to have stories of crunch and horrible working conditions and stuff coming around our game because there would be a bummer. And also I don't want to work on anything in that kind of capacity in a way. It's, I just want to work with people that make me smile and hopefully make them smile in return as well. Actually, let's expand on that a little bit. What is your hope in creating The Last Worker? And when I say hope, I don't mean that you hope that The Last Worker turns out well and heaps of people play the game. I mean hope in the sense that The Last Worker is something worth doing regardless of how it turns out. My hope for The Last Worker is to make people empathize with the invisible humans that bring them their comforts. To also realize that we are easily replaceable all of us but at the same time the one thing that cannot be replaced is human connection and that is what we should seek the most and by empathy i don't mean just for humans but also for any living spirited being around us 
but also ideally I want people to have an incredible time when they play this game for five to six hours and be entertained and laugh and scared and intrigued and just really freaking entertained and be physically and also mentally engaged with it. But I want to have conversations happening around it. I mean, games are the most successful, powerful entertainment industry in the world. They're now bigger than cinema as an industry. 20 years ago was the other way around. And as a, compared to a film, video games can take up sometimes hundreds of hours of one person's time, one game. I think that as an industry, we have a responsibility to not kill time, but fill time with meaning. And again, it comes back to the idea of intent. If your game is about nothing, then what you're doing is you're killing time. And I don't think we can afford to kill people's time anymore. I don't want to preach to people. I have nothing to teach people at all. All I want to do is to tell them to wake the fuck up and feel something. That's it. Feel something. Start thinking about something. Discuss stuff with friends. Talk about your dreams. Share ideas. Like, what do you want? And do you just want to serve what they want? Because what they want up there, those digital tech head assholes, is not good. <laughs> it's, it's just not fulfilling. Like fulfillment centers do not fulfill your life, not yours, and certainly not that of those working there. And so to, to trigger conversations around the themes of it is, is my ultimate goal. And I hope it will. For me, that is such a neat way of describing Good Future's work. So using different kinds of processes, tools, methods, artifacts, and games to help us step away and ask more elegant questions of the present, particularly in ways that actually allows us to then challenge, provoke, and contemplate our preferred futures. Let's bring this back to in-real-life workers now. Given everything that you've learned through designing the game and your understanding of the emerging trends and issues around work, what are some things that you think real-life workers can start to do come Monday? I think it, it, there's so much to unpack because we need to start from the ground up. I think we need to start genuinely asking and challenging our bosses, our politicians, everyone around us to answer the why with things other than economic lizard brain money bullshit. It's not an excuse. Mm -hmm. Like if we could trust any sort of economics-based reasoning for anything, then you realize that none of that stuff has helped us, has it? I mean, we are fucked. Like, our economies are fucked. Our societies are fucked. We've got fascism on the rise everywhere and hatred and division. And that is because we have been using money as the sort of, as the determinant for everything. And it can't be. So we need to, as a society, before we even think about what it means to be a worker and all this kind of stuff, we need to, from the very beginning, are you making this decision based on morals and empathy and mutual respect? And if you're not, then it's not right to do it. That's it. And so ultimately, we need to inspire our leaders, our architects, our technologists, our futurists to make decisions based on empathy. I think that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, we're fucking ourselves and each other. The Last Worker for me is a game that helps light a match in the dark corners of work. In many ways, I think it's a brilliant simulation of a dystopian future of work that is partially here, though unevenly distributed. Automation, atomization, gamification, precarity, surveillance, degrading job quality. The Last Worker is a prototype for a modern world of work that is empowering for capital and increasingly paralyzing and demoralizing for workers. 
But the future of work doesn't happen in a straight line, of course, and one change doesn't happen in isolation from another. If I put on a critical futures hat now, the idea that all of our jobs might disappear on some apocalyptic scale as a direct and sole result of automation and robotization may be slightly overstating the capacities of today's technology. But if we turn and face the strange futures of work change, we might also start to see other deep real challenges. I think one of the paradoxes of computer-driven automation is that the desire to eliminate human workers typically generates new tasks for other humans somewhere else in the market. In other words, automation technologies can both destroy and create jobs. But the issue here is that I'm not talking about the creation of new jobs for highly skilled Silicon Valley tech workers. I'm talking about a hidden and murky form of low-tech human support required to configure, calibrate and adjust automation technologies to a changing world. We don't see them, but there they are, the 20 million plus digital workers, according to the Pew Centre, sitting at keyboards for hours, flagging hate speech, moderating violent content, tagging images and verifying and validating data, all with the public goal of ensuring a seamless and safe online experience and the private goal of fooling us as consumers into believing in entirely autonomous intelligence. What I'm talking about here is what anthropologist Mary Gray and computer scientist Sadat Siri calls ghost work a globally dispersed pool of workers that are contracted only for the time that it takes to complete a task. These workers are afforded no rights, routine or security, working task to task, scraping together barely enough to survive. But there are other change drivers around work that I think present a more terminal problem. Changes that actually challenge automation as the leading and primary cause for displacement and precarious work. In simple terms, the decade-long economic downturn and the deceleration of growth has reduced the number of jobs which is depressing the global demand for labour. This chronic labour under-demand already shows up today through things like jobless recoveries, stagnant wages, underemployment, poverty and rampant job insecurity and precarity. So I actually think it's economic drivers like the declining demand for labour that are equal to, if not more likely to shape our working futures. But let's get back to the game. For me, The Last Worker serves up salient truths about our working futures. There's a brilliant quote by the philosopher Bernard Suits that I think sums up the game. He says, We call games pastimes and regard them as trifling fillers of the interstices of our lives. But they are much more important than that. They are clues to the future and their serious cultivation is perhaps our only salvation. The last worker is a ridiculous at first future, provoking us all to wake up and to challenge the idea that techno-dystopian futures of work are preordained. But perhaps more importantly, I think the game encourages workers to reclaim cultural agency and to turn the tide towards more human and humane futures of work. If games are the new form of storytelling, this game tells a story of our working futures that we should be doing everything to avoid in the present. For those interested in playing The Last Worker, the demo is now available and the full version will be out in 2023 on all gaming platforms, PC and leading VR platforms. Jörg also has a book that he's releasing next year, The Last Worker Delivered, which showcases conversations around the themes of the game. To wrap up today's episode, I'll leave you with one of Jörg's most piercing bits of advice. Thank you for joining us. I have nothing to teach people at all. All I want to do is to f tell them to wake the fuck up and feel something. That's it. 
Feel something. Start thinking about something. Discuss stuff with friends. Talk about your dreams. Share ideas. Like, what do you want? And do you just want to serve what they want? Because what they want up there, those digital tech head assholes, is not good. <laughs> it's, it's just not fulfilling. Like, fulfillment centers do not fulfill your life. 